Welcome back to Presidents in Politics. I am Professor McGee, joined by my co-host, former Congressman Ross. And today we're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. And what an interesting man. It's going to be a challenge just to fit this in one podcast. I don't think we can, but we'll do our best. <laughs> He's a man of many contradictions. Yes. Oh, in many ways. So many ways. He's a paradox. Was it uh, that yep. Reagan talked about um, with Russia, that yep. it's an enigma wrapped in a riddle? Yes. <laughs> and in many ways, that's Jefferson. It, and when you look at his history and even, you know, he, it's interesting because as a founding father, you know, he, he came from wealth. His father was yes. a, a planter or surveyor. And he, yes. he, but he had one ambition for, for knowledge that mm. he just could not, you know, resist. And he would, he, he was self-trained lawyer, essentially, yes. you know, um, archaeologist. Yes. Uh, gosh, so Inventor. many things. Inventor. He invented the swivel chair, which is just super random. Wow. But yeah, I mean, who would have known? But like you said, one of, and you and I have talked this about a lot. But one of the things I love about the Founding Fathers is they were broadly read and they were deeply read. Yes. And you and I have talked about this a lot, but we don't see this in modern academics, right? We become so narrow and so focused. You pick one area and you know that one area, that's all you know. And I think that's a disservice to people who want to read more broadly and especially for our leaders. I agree. And as someone who, who you and I teach political science, one thing I hate to see is students who spend four years undergrad, go on and get a law degree or whatever, and that's all they study and they don't ever touch the broader subject right. area. How are they represented to a people? How are they going to lead in a multifaceted world? Which made him rather interesting. I mean, he could play the violin. In. Yes, he was an architect. Or a fiddle from where we're from. Yeah, yes, he was, he was even a wine connoisseur. He, yeah, you know, he 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 would he did everything a yes. person could do, but in, and he did it with gusto. Yes, um, just a rather interesting man that came about at the right time. Yeah, full of flaws, full of oh, faults. Yes, uh, like all of us. Yes, but that's okay <laughs> because I think he's still, despite. You know, the fact that he was a slave owner, the, mm. despite the fact that, that he built this Monticello that was, you know, just an incredible uh, home that was almost like a city, that he was so foundational yes. to our independence. Yes. And and he never lost his passion yes. for our political process. And, and I, I, I find him to be, you know, in one sense I cheer him, in the other sense I, I, I almost boo him because yes. of, of the, the contradictions in his life. Well, one thing that you said, I always tell my students this, there are great men and there are good men, and the question is how do we become both? Yeah. Right? I mean, think about, like, this idea of greatness being powerful, being influential. I mean, we could even say that someone like Mussolini was a great man, but he was not a good man. Right. So the key to life is can you be a great man or a great person and a good person? And with Jefferson, that's the dichotomy at times, right? He is a great person. Nobody's going to discount that. Right. But what about his ethics and his morals and his goodness at times? That's where we find— Well, he put it at risk because, yes. you, know, when, you know, here's a guy who, who wrote what was the summary of the rights of the British America. Yes. And, yes. And, and, and he basically said that, that Britain has no control over the American colonies. This was in 1774. I mean, here's a guy who says, you know, we need to be independent. We need to be left alone. He drafts the, the, the Declaration of Independence— and he, while he has slaves, he understands that, that slavery is not healthy for America. Read the Declaration. Uh, yes. Which, granted, it was edited in order to placate the North. I, I realize yeah. that. But in his own literature, you see this constant ideal of the equality of man. Yes. And I think he struggles with this in his own mind, to be honest. And I think that's the flaw of humanity that shines through in his life, is that he knew better. <laughs> but he also rationalized yes. his success and his wealth by saying, you know, they need me, I need to be doing this, yes. and while I can turn a blind eye to slavery, I'll make sure that they're treated well, and yes. and, 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 and it'll all justify itself in the end. Well, you know, we know how it turns out, and <laughs> unfortunately, it was a civil war several years yes. later, but he put together a... a an incredible foundation upon which this country still stands. Agreed. 
But he also did some things that are just, you know, the first political parties, his his controversial election to the presidency. Yes. You and I have said a lot. Washington hated politics, right? I mean, like, I love Washington. He's this just down to earth, blue collar, just kind of Okeechobee rancher kind of guy. Right. And then Adams comes along. He's this short little, you know, cherub looking guy, brilliant mind, but still loves to hunt backcountry, doesn't trust politics. Right. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think he said that one ignorant man is a fool, two ignorant men are a law firm and three <laughs> ignorant men is Congress. Right. And, and this, this was Adams idea. And then we go from this to, to Jefferson and Jefferson yeah. knew how to play the political game. He, he started that political game when yes. George Washington appointed him as secretary of state and Alexander Hamilton as secretary of the treasury. And the two hated each other. Oh, despite you know, you, here you had Hamilton who wanted a, a strong central government. Yes. Here you had Jefferson who believed more in states' rights. And they were undermining each other to the extent where even Washington had to write a letter to each of them yes. to essentially tell them to back off. Yeah. It's almost like you have Washington as like the dad and they're like yes. striving for each other. It's like these two siblings that are fighting to want Washington's approval. And at the end of the day, Washington's like, both of you need to just calm down. Yep. Because you're, you're, you're demolishing our system at the very start of this. And it, it just... It, it eventually leads to the the election, the, the you know, in, in, in 1800, where this is high. It's a tie between yeah. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. And what does it go to the House of Representatives yes. for 36 votes or yes. something of that nature? I yes. mean, we thought that, you know, the, the election of Speaker this last time <laughs> took a long time. Imagine 36 votes in the House of Representatives to elect a president. In fact, a very new nation who had only been in existence for Good. 12 years is now being stressed constitutionally as to how we elect our leader. Yeah, this is only the second real election that's really yes. taking place, right? That's because true. no one's running against Washington. True. It's the second real election, and we're already going, is it going to work? Yeah. Right? Like, here's this great experiment. It's something new. Everywhere else in the, in the world this time has kings and republics and oligarchies. And for the first time, we're seeing a democratic republic. Yes. And we're just a couple decades in, and we're going, maybe this isn't going to work. Yeah. And what happens? The political <laughs> influences yes. start, you know, the name calling, the, oh. this, you know. It, it became a, a terrible, and poor John Adams, you know, he didn't even make the ballot to, for, for the runoff. No. Uh, which then led to the 12th Amendment so that the, yes. the second vote getter didn't become vice president. But Can you imagine that in today's time? I, I always do, go through this with my students. Like, can, can we imagine if, just take modern political structure, if you had Joe Biden as the president and you had Trump as the vice president, what the White House would look like, uh, again, not bringing partisan politics into this, but just that idea. And I've had some students as we walk through this and go, wouldn't that help the White House feel more representative by different areas of of the country? Your opinion from someone who's been there, actually seen it in the blue collar world, what would that look like if we still carried this over in today's time? You know, we say that gridlock is good because it's deliberative government. It takes time. But this would probably be a a wrench in the spoke (laughs) if we had the the, the runner up become vice president. It'd be undermining because you'd always want to be the number one person. And, and, you know, you have to have that trust in your administration. Fortunately, you know, that was a flaw that was identified in this election of 1800 and then led to the 12th Amendment, which now they run as a ticket, uh, a vice president, president, vice president. But so that was a good thing that came out of it. And then Jefferson becomes president, and by golly, he really doubles the size of America. Yeah, the Louisiana Purchase, right? Amazing. What is it, three cents an acre? Yeah, I think so. Napoleon gets squeezed. Now, what's really interesting here <laughs> is when he originally goes for the delegation to buy this, the original terms he's buying from Napoleon, Napoleon squeezed for money, right? Napoleon right. owns this. He's going to war with England again. Napoleon goes to war with everyone, right? So he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. And Jefferson originally thinks he's only going to buy New Orleans and West Florida, just the panhandle. And then as they're sitting down talking, he starts offering more and more and more. And before long, he's literally offering 
half of North America yeah. for three cents an acre. Twice the size of what was existing. Yes. Amazing. And Jefferson, of course, does this, and then he sends Lewis and Clark. Yeah. Um, if you go to Monticello, there's still the artifacts that Lewis and Clark bring back, a lot of Native American artifacts and others in his home. And uh, just what an amazing expansion that takes place. Um, at such a cheap time, such an opportune time. And yes. Jefferson actually didn't have the congressional approval to buy as much land as what was there, but he's afraid that Napoleon will, will, will basically pull back on this. So he agrees and has to go back to Congress later and get it ratified, which he does. So it's interesting to see Jefferson's leadership style as well. He sees an opportunity and he seizes it. Yes. Um, and you think, you know, well, what would have happened if we if he didn't get all of the Louisiana Purchase? I think ultimately in today's world, we would still have all that as the United States of I America. Agree. But how we would have, you know, acquired it may have mm. been a little bit more... Bloody. <laughs> bloody, yeah. Even though it was bloody anyway, you know, um, because France's claim was, what, only as good as, you know, they could hold on to it. Exactly. You know, from the indigenous people that were there. Yeah, you remember this whole time you have, of course, the, 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 the Plains Indians who were some of the most powerful at that time period. And who cares what people... Uh, 2,000, 3,000 miles across the sea say who owns this on a piece of paper. That's right. that's still their land, and that's where, of course, the, the Indian wars come in, uh, people like Custer and all that, which will come later, uh, but very interesting thing. One thing I want to pull out that I thought as far as like the leadership style of Jefferson, um, I often think about this. You're not ready to lead until you know how to follow. Hmm. And one thing I think about with Jefferson is that he signs the Declaration of Independence age 34, and he doesn't become president until he's 57. And for decades, he's the number two, number three guy. I mean, where do we count? Secretary of State, maybe number three, number four yeah, guy. Yeah. And he's constantly that, like, powerful guy, but he's always in the shadow of someone else for decades. That's true. He, You know, he replaced Benjamin Franklin as emissary to France. Yes. You know, Which he, he loves France. Oh, he loves Probably France. Probably because he loves wine. Yes. I read and, somewhere and that his, Yeah, I read somewhere <laughs> that his, his wine bill when he left the White House was $10,000 in that day's time. <laughs> now, can you imagine, like, a, a congressional spending oh, committee in today's time? Oh, my gosh. Uh, and he, you know, he actually dies, of course, broke. And yeah. one of the major reasons why is because of his love of wine and his love of books. Yeah. He collected or amassed 6,500 books, which was the largest library in North America, which later, of course, he'll sell back to the government after the right. burning of D.C. in War of yeah, 1812. Yeah. So he sells back, and that's and, and as an old man, he sees his books like riding off in the sunset, and he'll probably never see them again. Um, and I, I realize they're, they're rebuilding a lot of Jefferson's collection in the... Um, well, the Library of Congress, yes. yes, they are. They actually, you can tour the uh, the Jefferson collection there. Yes. And uh, it, it's, it is fascinating. Yes. It's amazing. He sold that for, what, just under $24,000? Yes, because he, he was $28,000 in debt, so he yeah. almost got out of debt for you know a yeah. brief time in his life. Here's a guy, you know, that used human capital to to, mm. to maintain his his his, his lifestyle. Yes. Um, again, it's 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 an amazing story of a man that that was much needed in this country, but yet still had so many faults, as all of them did. Yes. And, and you know, I think yes. that the takeaway here is is that we're all going to have our faults. We're all going to have, you know, our problems. But yet, if we stay focused at least on the greater good, there can be something great that comes out of this. Agreed. And and that's what I think we're looking for in our na- our, our leaders in our nation today, is, is we, we'll accept your faults. We'll accept your indiscretions as long as you acknowledge them, but more importantly, as long as you put the greater good above all that. That's good. And, and I like that. But we need to be teaching that. We need to we need to recognize that. Yes. We need to reward that. Agreed. Because we're all going to make the mistakes. Well, I guess while we're talking about the dichotomy of who Jefferson was, we can kind of move in the idea of Jefferson's religion, right? Of all the founding fathers, 
he is the hardest to understand. So some will say Jefferson was not a, a believer. Jefferson, uh, of course, he had something he called the de- demythalization of the Bible, yes. where he had taken the New Testament, he cut out all the miracles, and he had his own version of the Bible. A lot of people say, well, this is because Jefferson did not believe the miraculous. There may be some credence to that. But in all honesty, Jefferson carried this around with him everywhere, and in many ways he was keeping the words of Jesus close to him. So it's, it's something interesting to think about. And then I want to read this quote as, as we think about the idea of, of Jefferson's religion. He said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That's wow, powerful. That is powerful, isn't it? Yeah. And if you think about this, I think it's one thing we see throughout the founding fathers, their, their faith is they had this idea of the justice of God. Remember, we talked about Washington on his, on his, on his coffin yeah. was inscribed, rise to justice. And, and, and I think maybe this idea of an accountability that was higher than them kept their power in check. And as we kind of lost the religion, the faith of America, maybe that's why there feels that there's no longer an accountability to American government. Well, I think you're right. And I, I think one of the things that he was concerned about as he authored the, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom was that he didn't want the government to tell him what religion he had to have Bingo. and what he had to practice. Yes. And so I, I, and that that in and of itself tells a lot because here he drafts a statute for Virginia that eventually becomes, you know, probably one of the most important things that, yes. that in his career. And, and he establishes, look, if I want to believe, let me believe, but don't tell me what I have to believe exactly. in my religious beliefs. I recognize the sanctity of a person's religious belief. Yes. And I think that's the, the, the takeaway from that is, is that whether he was religious or not, he understood that a person had that right to believe yes. and follow through on their religious convictions. Yes. And that had to be preserved. That had to be protected. And he did that as, as, as a legislator yes. in the House of Burgess and then as governor of Virginia. Uh, with the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. That's that's pretty significant. Yes. I mean, if he didn't believe <laughs> at all, then why have it? Absolutely. Why have it? Absolutely. Well, think about the context, because nothing's ever written in a vacuum. Think of the context where he's writing this from. The absolute corruption of the Church of England. And then, of course, those who, who fled that came to America, they set up this, this puritanical culture. And before long, these congregational churches in New England become too powerful, too, before the Declaration. Of course, the Salem Witch Trials, other things, yeah, I... where they're basically running government from inside the church. And Jefferson said, okay, we need to have this separation of church and state. That was never to keep God out of government. That was never the idea behind this. It was to keep this idea of having small churches or church body be run by corruption. It was to protect the church and the government, but, but to keep the government from getting in the church, too. Right. Right? And we missed this. And in, and in today's more secular-leaning culture. We talk a lot about the separation of church and state. That was never to keep these in, these men's individual faith out. It was that's, the key. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, and I, mean, I think we missed that that's idea. That's the moral fabric of our leader. Yes, you absolutely. Know, and we need that. We and we do. don't talk about that. No, we should. Yeah, we should, because the, the whole idea was that basically Baptists aren't going to run or Church of God aren't going to run or, or, or Presbyterians aren't going to run, that one denomination is not going to run the country, right? Right. And, and, and But now we've, we've taken this concept and we said, that means that you as a congressman can't talk about your faith. Yeah. Jefferson was never about that. None of the founding fathers, the, the idea of separation of church and state was not to keep an individual's faith out of their politics. It was to keep the two from the government, and corrupting yes. each other. Yeah, keep the government out of the religious beliefs. So, yes. Can you imagine how scary that would be? I mean, they can't get the post office right. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine going to a church that's oh, run by? I, yes. Yeah. That I would mean, be awful. It would be awful. And that was the whole idea behind that. And I think we, we've muddied the issue along the way. Of course we have. You know, and and look, you know, you look back at the the election of John Kennedy for president. Even Billy Graham got involved in that on behalf yes. of Richard Nixon, and yes. because they didn't want a Catholic, a Catholic. The, you know, being told by the Pope how to yes. run a country. And you know, sometimes 
the religious believers can be their own worst enemies. We understand that, but that's the fallibility of man. Um, But it still doesn't eliminate the fact that their faith plays a role in how they go about leading a nation. And the lack of faith does so as well. Would you like to touch on, from your experience in Congress, someone who's had, how did your faith play out your role as a congressional leader? Well, it was very significant. You know, it, it is the, again, it, it it's it's what created what I think is my moral foundation of how we ought to be led. And I would uh, associate with like-minded people on yes. both sides of the aisle. Imagine that. You know, uh, that, that that had similar religious belief, Christian faith as I did. Uh, you know, but I enjoyed the I enjoyed the discussion of diversity with yes. them. Uh, you know, I, I became very uh, active with the uh, the uh, Israeli community. Yes. And, and, and As was Washington and the Founding yes, Fathers. Yes. We and, see and you should. Uh, the, 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 the Arab community, I, I, I visited Arab families over in the Middle East and, and really got to know, understand, understand that the heart of their, their desires is to do good for their family yeah. in peace and to build a better society yes. than what they had for their children. You know, that's... That's the common ground we all find, and that has to be facilitated through a process of government. And if you can't like allow that. that to happen, then then God help us all, because that's <laughs> where the religious beliefs come into play in order for us to find that common ground and to build that better nation. Yes, yes we have differences. Of course we do. Any good marriage is going to have Absolutely. differences, but you got to work through them. And and our founding fathers, despite the fact, you know, again, we go back to what John Adams and 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 Thomas Jefferson were like after the Declaration of Independence, after the the, the, the loss to <laughs> Jefferson and Adams hates him, and but then they they rebuild their relationship. It's a story of redemption, it, isn't it? It is a great story yes. of redemption that again I think shows providence in the creation, development, and continuity of the United States. Yes. And, and I, I find I like that to that. be fascinating. I like that. I also want to touch on, we talked about this idea of religion, but in the Declaration, two things always stand out to us. We talk a lot, the freedom of religion and the freedom of free speech. Yes. And I think this is something that's very applicable for where we are today, right? And Jefferson, more than almost anything else, just prided the idea of free speech. And one thing we always teach in our political classes is that you cannot have democracy apart from a free press. It's and absolutely true. It is, right? I mean, look at look at North Korea and, and then look at us. I mean, just look at the way that a press is treated. And you can tell really fast yeah. where are we are on the free. Because if you control the information, then you control everything. That's kind of Plato's the cave, right? Yeah. He's bringing yeah, he's information right. down. Exactly. That's, that's pretty much all it is, <laughs> exactly. right? If you go to political philosophy, that's the whole idea. You control the information. You control the narrative, right? Yes. So with that in mind, I, I often wonder as I read through a lot of these founding fathers, what would their take be on, on maybe modern-day censorship on social media and other things as we're seeing beginning to kind of change how would they look at this? That's a very good question because you look at Thomas Paine. You look back then, but back then, you know, you controlled your argument by by publishing yes. your side, whether it was truthful or not. Yes. And 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 censorship was a function of government. Mm. Today, we're seeing censorship a function of private industry by way good. of the social media. Absolutely. Now, where do, I don't know how our founding father. They'd probably first say, look. We have to just keep hands off of it. This is the private sector controlling mm-hmm. their own their own medium, if you An will. Adam Smith kind of idea, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Kind of hands off. But then, again, the development of our country, we saw we're more government and more government and more government. Mm-hmm. So in today's world, you would probably see the founding fathers want to do something about uh, regulating I social agree. media uh, platforms. And I think we'll get there eventually. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's a good thing. No. I'm just saying that, that that they can't keep itself in check. Yeah, one thing that's scary, I always tell my students this. I ask them, if, if I give them an assignment to research, what's the first thing you do? And 99%, they go to Google, they search things. I'm like, you're literally narrowing down your entire scope of research to one corporation's idea of what you need to see. 
Think about like back in the 1700s, you had multiple publishing houses and multiple ideas instead of having basically one algorithm that is tailoring information to you. Right. That's kind of a scary thought. Well, and it's a scary thought, and it's a scary thought how you get them under control. And I'll give you a, an example. When I was in Congress, we had an anti-piracy bill that we were pushing, and I was on the I was a co-sponsor of it that would have made these uh, internet providers liable for pirating content, mm. and, and we were trying to protect artists and, and yes. intellectual property and things of that nature. Well, Google and the and all the internet providers didn't like it. <laughs> so what they decided to do is to shut down for 24 hours. Mm. 24 hours, they shut down. Our phones rang off the hook. That bill died wow. because nobody was going to want to support anything that was going to upset the user's use of the internet. And wow. Google showed just how – and all these other ones showed how powerful they were mm. by saying, you know what? We'll just take it away for a day and see what happens. And show how addicted people are, right? Yeah, exactly. Saying and, they're shaking without their social yeah. media. And now now you've got this, this social media. You've got this private sector that basically says, government, you're not going to censor us. Mm. So good luck. Yeah. And, and and where this ends up, again, I don't know. But um, I, I just would be curious to see how Thomas Jefferson would, would address that. Yeah, I agree. I often wonder some of these modern uh, issues that we face. Again, the idea of alliances in Washington, we talked about that. The idea of censorship and free press in Jefferson. How would their ideals work in today's time? And this is one of the reasons why you and I have said this over and over again. History is inseparable to politics. And we are doing such a disservice in America that we don't teach history. We don't teach civics. We don't actually walk through these things. And I always tell my students, if you get elected, if you become a congressman, if you become a senator, who cares? What are you going to do now? You're right. If you have not studied a base, if you don't know political philosophy, if you don't know history, if you don't have something to draw from, a moral compass from your faith, if you don't have these things, are you just simply going to feel the yeah. wind? Well, there's that, that, that famous movie years and years ago, The Candidate, with Robert Redford, yeah. who takes on this, this incumbent U.S. senator. And Robert Redford wins as this, this, this dark horse. And at the end of the movie, uh, he, he looks and, uh, up at his campaign manager and says, now what do we do? You know, and, and it's like, wow, do you just campaign and hope you can govern? <laughs> if you learn the fundamental, if you understand history, if you appreciate the process, understand that the process that, that, that Thomas Jefferson was utilizing back then is the same process we have today. It's yes. the same Constitution. Yes. Yes, we have more laws. Yes, we have more uh, constitutional amendments. But yet is the same framework that has been utilized in order to distill our diversity into resolution. Yes. And that has been the beauty of our system. And these guys knew it. Yes. In fact, Jefferson's final letter that he writes, I, I want to read a, a section of this because it goes exactly with what you're saying. He said this, May it be to the world what I believe it will be, to some part sooner, to others later, but finally to all, the signal of arousing men to burst the chains under which monkish ignorance and superstition had persuaded them to bind themselves. That's part one. And then part two. And to assume the blessings and security of self-government. Basically what Jefferson is saying is, may what we're doing now be a model for generations to come. Amen. Amen. But we got to teach it. Yeah. We got to show the world what, what this next generation, what was done back then. We can resolve these yes. issues. We, racism has been around for a long time. My gosh. I mean, we got to talk about this. Look at Jefferson, 600 slaves during his lifetime. Mm. He even, he fathered uh, children through yes. a slave. I mean, this is all American history. Is it bad? Yes, it's bad, but it's history. Let's not change it. Let's learn from it. Yes. And let's make sure we don't do it again. Uh, oh, absolutely. Again, we've said throughout this podcast, it's descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Hey, well put. We're seeing what – we're not saying go and do that, right? No, no we're not. <laughs> we're definitely not saying that. What we're saying is this is what happened. Let's learn from it. Yep. 
Um, I always tell my class, especially when we come to things like the Holocaust or things like that, this turns your stomach, and it should turn your yes. stomach. And the whole it's thing repulsive. is we don't exactly. And the whole thing is we don't stop teaching it. We keep teaching it. Let your stomach turn, so that when you are leaders, you'll make sure this stuff doesn't happen again. Yeah, because it can, and it can quickly within a couple of generations. Yes. Haven't we seen that around the world in other areas where uh, a whole regime can take place and with a generation or two, you're in more captivity, more bondage, more chains than you ever were before? Haven't we seen that in the Middle East and other areas of that nature? Within a generation or two, liberty can be lost. Amen. I mean, look at what's happening in, in, in eastern Ukraine. Oh, you yes. know, this is uh, this is still amazing. And we won't have to go into this for, for, for any length of time. But <laughs> when you've got a major superpower in Russia invading another country in this day and age, it's just, I, I mean, we, we're not sure how to handle this. No. And and it's it's like, wow, years ago, this would have been different. It would have probably led to a world war, and I hope yes. that doesn't happen here. But but there are ways to deal with this that we have dealt with in the past that have failed that we can learn from in order to make sure that we can resolve this issue other than just keep sending them money. Yes. But it, Yes. Anyway, I digress. And, and I think this is where this kind of full circle comes back to the idea of being well read, broadly read, right? Yeah. We don't want to we don't want politicians who have spent 30 years studying one topic, but can we actually be well read across areas? Why was Jefferson? Why was Adams? Why was Washington so successful? They have read thousands of books from engineering to mathematics to agriculture to war to politics to diplomacy, and they have this broad knowledge base of a mind to work with. Uh, and an insatiable desire for knowledge. Yes. And we're not raising up well-read, broadly read people, men and women, who are ready to step into this. Look at the American education system, and we're not seeing, like, okay, Jefferson could, could fluently read French and Greek, and Hebrew, and Latin. Latin. He's read Plato in the original Greek. He has this great mind that he's working with. And now we don't really see that in politicians today. Oh, no, today. no, 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 we don't. And I think that you can't have a cookie-cutter politician and no. expect them to be the leader that this nation needs. Exactly. You've got to develop them with a broad liberal arts background. Imagine uh, Whether they go to college or not is right. not the important thing. Yeah. Whether they have the desire and thirst for knowledge Good. is what we need to be encouraging, yes. promoting, and satisfying for them. And you can do it in today's world on the internet. You can do it through libraries. You can do it through media and different yes. forms. But we need to be encouraging that. Well, let's hold up Washington and Jefferson. Washington, no formal education. Right. Had over 1,200 books in his library he had read through personally. Brilliant mind. Let's hold up Jefferson. Went to the College of William and Mary. This brilliant, both of them well read, both of them educated men, but they went about it in different ways. Right. We can still do that. We can still set up tracks for students to go different. Some may want to go to trade schools and other things of that nature, but that doesn't mean that you're not to read deeply and read broadly so you can actually impact your culture around you. Amen. I agree with that. I agree with it whole, whole One of the things, I, this is kind of like American folklore. This is this is not proven, so you know I don't teach this stuff in class. But one thing I find interesting is that uh, Jefferson had this 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 friendly face about him, uh, which Washington was never really accused of having, uh, <laughs> like ever, right? But he had this really friendly face. And one of the American folklores is that he was out riding with his group one day. Uh-huh. And um, you got to remember back then there's no TV, there's no photographs. So a lot of people didn't even know what the president of the United States looked like which is kind of weird to think of. People in the backwoods wouldn't even know what the president looks like. Stories told that he, he's riding through the backwoods with some of his men. There's an overflown river. I don't know if you've heard this or not. And in the backwoods of, of South Maryland. And he's riding through, and there's this guy who can't cross the river. He's waiting to see if somebody's going to come on horseback. And he looks at the entourage as they ride up. It's Jefferson. It's some of his men. And he walks up to Jefferson, not knowing he's the president. He said, hey, can I, can I jump on and, and ride across the river with you? And Jefferson said, yeah, that'll be fine. He helped him on the back. They rode across. They got to the other side. And the men around Jefferson said, um, did you know that was the president of the United States? No, I had no idea that's who it was. Well, why did you ask him and not us? And they said, you had no written on your face. Jefferson had a yes face. I love that. 
Isn't that cool? Like, that That's idea, powerful. It is. He's the leader of the free world, but yeah. he was still ready and willing to help out one of the just ordinary common people of the day. When was, That's, the, la- yeah. when was the last time you had politicians like that? Well, you don't see it that often, and if you do, you don't hear about it, which is unfortunate. Because you can't sensationalize that in the media. You can't make money off of that. Right? The business plan that you have to, to you know, to, to, to spread the uh, the news in the world, today's world. Um, but yeah, yeah, Thomas Jefferson, what's, what I think is amazing is that he wrote his own epitaph. Yeah. I like this. And, and, and he never put anything there uh, about being a um, president of the United States. In That's fact, right. I can get this up here real quickly. The beauty of technology, right? Yes. Uh, it doesn't work. But And he said, here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author, author of the Declaration of Independence of the Statue of Virginia for Religious Freedom hmm. and father of the University of Virginia. You know, this guy could have put anything cool. on there. That's cool. You know, but but he, 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 he those things meant the most to him. Faith and knowledge. Faith and knowledge. Yeah. The rest of it is just ancillary. That's good. You know, and, and I mean, they say That's that, good. you know, uh, um, uh, Stephen Covey, the uh, author of the uh, Seven, Seven Habits, Habits. for Highly Effective yeah. People, yes. And he says, you know, one of the things that you start with the end in mind, and, and he even suggests that you that, that sometimes you should just go draft your own obituary. Mm. That's cool. And just to see, you know, how do you want to be remembered? Mm. And, and and that's essentially what Thomas Jefferson did here. He, he wrote his own epitaph, and this is how he wanted to be remembered. Not that's about cool. all that other stuff. Not the Declaration of the Independence, you know? I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, he, he did say the Declaration, but, but, but his— But his, the freedom of religion in that, specifically. Yes. And the rights. I mean, when you read the Declaration of Independence, it is an indictment of the King of England. He basically calls King George out and, yes. and says, you're the worst thing that's ever happened yes. to humanity, and we're not going to take it anymore. And he's pinning it and signs it at the yes. end. I mean, most powerful navy in the world. Yeah, and then he goes and goes and rejoins the House of Burgess and becomes yeah. governor. He becomes governor of, uh, of Virginia. It's just amazing. I really like that you read that, by the way. I've read that before, and I love that you read that because what I'm hearing, one of the things I'm hearing is Jefferson was not a career politician. And politics were not who he was, it's what he did. Absolutely, which is well put. I think that's very important and a lesson that all politicians should have. We don't see that anymore, right? It's the idea of I am the president, I am a congressman, I am a senator. No, hopefully you're a man of faith, a man of knowledge, a man of principle first, and then this is what you did. And remember, he was elected his second term with 70% of the uh, electoral vote. There were no presidential uh, term limits back then. That's right. He could have easily stayed on. Yes, but he chose not. And he was in good health, too. He was in very good health. I mean, health. he had no reason to pull no. out. No. I mean, he would. He just bought, you know, doubled the size of America. Life was good. Mm-hmm. You know, what was interesting is that that he also took the, uh, you know, we were having uh, terrorism on the high seas. The Barbary the Coast, the Barbary right? Coast. And he wins the Barbary Coast War. And he's yep. a war hero. Well, not that he fought, but yeah. the president as a as, as commander as a in chief. Yes. Exercises that takes Marines yes, over there. Some of the first times that Marine actions used. Yeah, overseas and and establishes the U.S. as a as a naval authority. Yeah, worldwide. Yeah, which is amazing. Yes, because this guy was not a warrior. No, he was a Renaissance man in his own right. <laughs> yes, and he wasn't a he wasn't a great speaker, but no. he could write. His pen was so powerful. Masterful writer, but yeah, I've read different things about his speaking. It was said that his voice was kind of timid and he kind of, you know, basically said past the back row, you couldn't even really hear him. Yeah. But then, like you said, you read his writings and oh my Lord, he's masterful. And I think that's maybe, I, I see these are professors. I think either we're, we're really good lecturers or really good writers and it's kind of rare to have the combination of that both. That is true. Right? And I think we see this as founding fathers. You know, someone like Teddy Roosevelt, who's a masterful speaker. Yes. Of course, he was actually a pretty prolific author too. Yes. But he's yeah. writing on like hunting and ranching. It's not like he's writing, yeah. you know, deep philosophy either. Yeah. So and The Man in the Arena. That's a oh, great Oh, The Man in the Arena is yeah, that's... <laughs> We're getting excited about getting to the life of Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Right, uh, kind of jumping ahead, but 
one of my favorites. So this has been the life of Thomas Jefferson. Let me just close with that super famous preamble of the declaration that he pins. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from, <laughs> from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish. And the institute of new government laying its foundation on such principles. Notice that Jefferson over and over again says there must be founding principles that everything we do is laid upon. Absolutely. And this has been the study of Thomas Jefferson. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.